You can be seated. This morning we'll be moving on in 2 Kings, looking at 2 Kings chapter 3. You can find that beginning on page 572 in the Bible ahead of you in the pews. 2 Kings chapter 3. Before we read that, let's pray together. Lord, we pray for your light upon your word, that you would bless your word as it is preached, and that you would bless us as well as we hear it, that we would want to hear it, and then want to do what it says. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. 2 Kings chapter 3, Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria, in the eighteenth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned twelve years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. Now Mesha, king of Moab, raised sheep. And he had to supply the king of Israel with a hundred thousand lambs and with the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But after Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. By what route shall we attack, he asked. Through the desert of Edom, he answered. So the king of Israel set out with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for the animals with them. What? exclaimed the king of Israel, has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? But Jehoshaphat asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Elisha said to the king of Israel, What do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to hand us over to Moab. Elisha said, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, If I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you or even notice you. But now bring me a harpist. While the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha, and he said, This is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches. For this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain at this valley will be filled with water. And you, your cattle, and your other animals will drink. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand Moab over to you. 
You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. The next morning, about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom, and the land was filled with water. Now all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them, so every man, young and old, who could bear arms was called up and stationed on the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. To the Moabites across the way, the water looked red, like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings must have fought and slaughtered each other. Now to the plunder, Moab. But when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns, and every man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. Only Kir Harasheth was left with its stones in place, but men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it as well. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. You know, I'm not really one much for sermon titles. I'm not really one much for sermon titles because I sometimes don't really know what to go with. Do I go with catchy or do I go with telling? And sometimes by the time I give the, when I give the title to Sheila either on Wednesday afternoon or Thursday morning, by the time I get done writing Thursday or, or finishing up on Friday, what I thought I was going to say is different than what I actually say and the title's not worth anything anyways. And does anybody really care about sermon titles? I've never had someone come up to me at the end of a sermon and say, ah, oh, good job, Pastor, that was a great sermon title, well done. I don't, I don't really, I don't really think so, but, but this, I think this sermon is, is aptly named. Who does your God listen to? And if there was room in the bulletin, I might have added, and why does he listen to the ones he listens to? Who does your God listen to? Who is God compelled to hear? And what compels him to hear the ones that he hears? That's what we're going to be, that's what we're going to be driving ourselves towards as we enter into the, the ancient but very relevant world of 2 Kings chapter 3. And as we enter into the, the world of 2 Kings chapter 3, we're, we're back in about 850 B.C., and we find something rather unusual in these first six verses. We find kind of an, an abnormality in Israel. And the abnormality is that there's a new king in Israel. That's the northern kingdom. There's a new king in Israel, and he's weird because he's not as bad as his father. Things in Israel almost always go from bad to worse, but in this case it goes from worse to bad. Ahab had worshipped Baal, and he had worshipped the cows or the golden calves of Jeroboam. But his son, his son Joram, or Jehoram in other translations, but we'll go with Joram. His son Joram doesn't worship Baal. In fact, Joram even removes at least one location of Baal worship. 
But even still, he still worships the golden calves. So he's still evil. He's not as evil as his father had been. But just because he's not as evil doesn't mean that he's not still evil. This is, a, this is an important thing for us to wrap our minds around. Because I've said it before and I'll say it again. Because there's a, there's a lie that goes around and it, it's spoken almost as if you would find it in the Bible. And the lie that goes around is that all sin is the same. No, all sin is not the same. You see that right here in this passage. Joram is a sinner. He is a bad sinner, but he's not as bad a sinner as his father Ahab had been. And we see this because the, the phrase, all sin is the same, is most often used not to demonstrate how terrible so-called small sins are, but to say that those larger sins aren't that bad. I mean, they try, they try to put sins perhaps like murder, adultery, or other, other perversions of that sort on the same plane as, as being angry with your neighbor. But that's absurd. Nobody actually thinks that being angry with your neighbor is as bad as actually killing your neighbor. And so it is that we see that Joram is a sinner, but he's not as bad a sinner as his father. Think of it like this. If Ahab's if Ahab's Baal worship, if Ahab's Baal worship is like being in a car accident and being paralyzed from the neck down, then Joram's, Joram's calf worship is like being in an accident and being paralyzed from the waist down. They're both very bad, but one is worse than the other. So that's what we find, but even so, we see that just because Joram isn't as bad doesn't gain him a whole lot of credit with the Lord. So Joram, Joram becomes king, and as he becomes king, Moab sees an opportunity. Moab sees some, some weakness in the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel, starting with Omri, and then through Ahab, and then through Ahaziah, and now through Joram, the kingdom of Israel has had Moab kind of under its thumb. And we see that that was a very heavy thumb, because the, the kingdom of Israel required the kingdom of Moab to give a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams to Israel every year. Now a hundred thousand isn't necessarily exactly a hundred thousand. It means really an innumerable amount of tribute. They required this economically crushing amount of tribute and it was meant to be that. It was meant to crush the economy of Moab so they wouldn't become strong enough to do any damage to Israel. But now Moab sees a chance because now there's perhaps a, a weak king on the throne, so they rebel. They look for a chance to find freedom. And in this, we see that Ahab's kingdom, just as God had promised, Ahab's kingdom begins to crumble. Then if we move into the, the next set of three verses, 7, 8, and 9, we see what seems to be kind of a, a king's remix. There's almost an identical situation playing out here. Ahab, rather, Joram has gone to Jehoshaphat and he says, I want you to come and fight with me. And this same thing had happened with Ahab. Ahab had come to Jehoshaphat and he, he had said, I want you to come and fight with me. And in that instance, Jehoshaphat had answered, I will go with you. 
I am, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. This is the exact same answer that Jehoshaphat gives to Joram. Now, you wonder why. It hadn't gone so well with Jehoshaphat back with Ahab. Ahab had ended up dead, and Jehoshaphat ended up running back to Judah with his tail between his legs. Why it is that now he would do the same thing with Ahab's son is beyond me. But do you see there's something very important missing here? Jehoshaphat gives answer to Joram without ever thinking to pray. He doesn't even call for a prophet. He just says, yes. Yes, I am as you are. My people as your people. My horses as your horses. Yes, I will go with you. Now, wouldn't you think, wouldn't you think that if he's going to make such a life-defining decision as to go to war, that if he is going to do something so big as to lead his country into war, one would think, wouldn't you, one would think that he would at least take some time to pray or to call the prophet who in the past has given rather good advice. How is it possible, right, how is it possible that someone would do such a thing? How could he be so foolish to make this kind of decision? Who would do that? Maybe we would. Maybe we make all kinds of major life decisions without ever spending time to really consult with the Lord. We, we see somebody who's cute or somebody who's charming, and off we go to them. We begin dating. We don't ask the Lord what he thinks about it. Then we get engaged. We haven't sought the Lord. We haven't sought the, the counsel of godly persons around us. We haven't, we haven't done our due diligence. We just get swept off our feet, and away we go. Those of you who are young and not yet dating, not yet engaged, not yet married, take heed. Pray. Seek the Lord. Seek godly persons around you before you make significant life-altering decisions, before you choose a career, before you choose where to live, before you choose to make any of these, these life-defining habits. Don't fall into the foolishness of Jehoshaphat. Well, see, it doesn't work out very well for him. He is foolish in this instance. And the unfortunate thing is that he is a royal mirror in which we all too often see ourselves. And so having not prayed, having not sought the prophet at all, it's not surprising that they find themselves literally high and dry in the plains of Moab. We would begin this if we looked at the next series of verses in verses 10 through 15. I want to just read again verse 10. What? exclaimed the king of Israel. Has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? They're out in the plains of Moab. There's no water. They've been out there. They, their, their army is about to die of thirst. They're about to get slaughtered in their weakness. And Joram, the king of Israel, says, What? How can this be happening? Has the Lord brought us here? What a bunch of garbage. 
Joram doesn't even worship the Lord. Joram's an idolater. He didn't seek the Lord. Jehoshaphat didn't seek the Lord. He doesn't care about the Lord. He probably brought his idols along. His army is full of idolaters. The Lord didn't come to him and say, you should go fight against Moab. The Lord didn't send him out there. He's like a lot of people, perhaps like a lot of us. He turns the Lord. He gets religious when he's desperate. How could God do this to us? Well, God didn't do this to him. He did this to him. But now in his desperation, now when he's come to the end of the line and he's about to perish, now he decides to turn to the Lord. Now he wants to pull in a prophet. Now he decides is the time to start looking to God, although he looks to God first merely to point the finger. He gets religious after he's already been done being foolish. We might say that Joram's sudden religiosity is sort of like a deathbed conversion. He's come to the end of the line. He's quite literally knocking on death's door. Now he decides, I better get religious. I better do something, and the only thing left to do is to turn to the Lord, to make an appeal to Him. But this is not a, this is not a sincere appeal. This is motivated only by fear, not by faith. It's easy to get religious in the face of death because there's nothing to lose. Yeah, you can... You can count me a little skeptical of deathbed conversions. Not that it can't happen. We see that with the, with the criminal on the cross next to Jesus. But perhaps it's easy to decide to be a disciple of Jesus when there's nothing left to lose. There's no cross to bear. There's no shame to be had. There's no discipleship. There's no narrow road to walk. There's, there's none of that. All there is is a last glimmer of hope to grab onto. That's where Joram's at. It's not a conviction of faith. It's not a conversion. It's just a matter of fear and convenience. And as we see, it's not really a conversion at all. And we see in the example of Joram the absolute unconditional foolishness of waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting to turn to God. Because sometimes it really is too late. And we see that here in the instance in the dialogue between the king and the prophet Jehoshaphat is suddenly kind of shaken out of his spiritual stupor. And all of a sudden he realizes, well, now might be a good time to ask the Lord what I should do. Right? He doesn't ask on the front end, but now he's stuck. And he decides, well, is there a prophet around? And by God's providence, there's a prophet around. Not just any prophet, but the, the prophet is around. Elisha. says, okay, the, the word of the Lord is with him. So they call him in. Now, now listen to the frightening dialogue between Joram and Elisha. Elisha comes in. He says to the king of Israel, 
what do we have to do with each other? You don't want a prophet to say that to you. And then he says, rather sarcastically, go off to the prophets of your father. Go off to the prophets of your mother. You've gone to them before. You can go to them again. Surely they will save you. Surely their gods are good enough. But then Joram says, no, no, you are the prophet of the Lord. You are the one who has power. He gets real sincere. And then what does Elisha say to him then? As surely as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you or even notice you. It's like Elisha says to him, you're dead to me. If the prophet of the Lord says you're dead to me, then you are dead to the Lord as well. God has no regard for Joram any longer. He will not listen to him. He would not save him. He would have nothing to do with him if he wasn't with Jehoshaphat. God has covered his ears to Joram's plea. It's too late for him. And sometimes, sometimes the Lord brings those who reject him again and again and again and again and again and again and again to the point where their hearts are so hardened they will not hear. And Jesus talks about that in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells his disciples why he speaks in parables. And it's not to illustrate, but it's actually to obscure. He says this, the disciples came, to, came and said to Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. The point, the point where God no longer wants Joram to change, has come. He will not listen to Joram, nor will he grant him the grace of repentance. It's frightening, isn't it? It's frightening that our hearts can become so hard, so calloused to the Lord. It becomes too late. And the, the lesson here is very simple. The lesson is, is very simple that it's very foolish to put off for tomorrow a coming to the Lord in faith. That as the Scripture says, today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not guaranteed for any number of reasons. Today is the day of salvation. Living as you please until you think it matters is a recipe for disaster, and quite frankly, damnation. God will not listen to Joram. For all the Lord cares, Joram and his army can bake in the Moabite sun to their pagan heart's delight. But 
God still has regard for Jehoshaphat. God still cares for Jehoshaphat. He is David's son. God still cares for Judah. And as the story moves on in the next number of verses, we see that the Lord comes to the rescue for the sake of Jehoshaphat and Judah. And something very strange happens then. In the last part of verse 15, we read that Elisha asks for a harpist to come. And the harpist plays. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the harpist, but I suspect it raised a few eyebrows as we read through. Now, why would he need a, a harpist to come? What an odd thing. Bring me a, bring me a harpist. You don't, you don't call for Cheryl to come to your house every time you want to pray and hear from the Lord. We'd have to pay Cheryl a lot more if she was going to make the rounds to go to everybody's house every time they wanted to pray. So why does the prophet call? Well, the prophets do all any number of things in which they, they seek the Lord, lots of means by which they seek the Lord. And it's the same reason that Elisha just threw the salt into the death water last week. It, it's not that the salt was healing. It's not that the, the harp forces God to come. It's all a sign that this is not the word of the prophet. This is the word of the Lord. The message does not originate from the prophet. It originates from the Lord. Now, notably, Jesus never does this. Why? Because it is Jesus' word. Because he is the Lord. But here is what the Lord says. He says, I will save you. I will save you. You will not save yourselves. I will save you. But that's a small thing to do. That's no big deal. He says, this is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. It's as if he says, I could do that in my sleep. This is nothing. I'm going to do something more than you have asked for. You've asked for a small thing. I'm going to give you a great thing. You've just asked not to die of thirst and to be able to go back home without getting slaughtered by your enemies. I'm going to do more than that. I am going to satisfy your thirst. I am going to refresh you and bring you back to strength. And then I'm going to give you victory. You're going to have a great victory. You're going to destroy your enemies. You're going to stop up their wells. You're going to cover their fields and stones. You're going to break down their cities. You are going to have the victory that you sought out to have. And I am going to do more than you asked or more than you imagined that I would do for you. And that God is our God. That is the God who does more than we ask. Who gives more than we imagine that He would or could give. Paul speaks of this God in Ephesians 3. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. According to the power at work within us. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I think sometimes we should pray more boldly than we do. We ask for small things. I think sometimes we ought to ask for big things. And so the Lord keeps His Word, and we see that, and then if we move on to the next five verses into verses 20 to 25. The Lord makes no promises about the end, but He does give them victory. 
And so what we see is the Lord keeps his word in both of these promises. First, he says there's going to be no rain by you. You're not going to hear rain. You're not going to see rain. But you are going to have the water you want. So the Lord sends sort of a, a monsoon into the highlands of Edom. And there the monsoon lands. And we see a, a flash flood comes flowing down into this wadi where the Israelites were. And it fills up all these ditches. And those who are about to die from thirst and all their animals, everything that needs water has water. And they are refreshed and they are strengthened for what comes next. And what comes next, that the army of Moab, everybody who can hold a sword and swing a sword has been brought out for battle. And the army of Moab looks down, and what do they see? They see all this water. Well, this couldn't actually be water, right? Because it hasn't rained. And the ground in that part of the world has a, a very distinct reddish hue. And so the, the sun reflects off the water, and it has a reddish hue. And they make what seems to be really the only logical conclusion, that they've killed themselves. And so they celebrate. They haven't even had to fight the battle. They're going to run down. They're going to kill perhaps a few stragglers, which should be no big deal. And they're going to take all the loot and all the plunder and have this great victory. And so they go rushing down. And what do they meet? Not plunder, not blood, at least not the Israelites' blood. They meet a fully refreshed and organized army of three kings who drives them back mercilessly. The Lord did exactly what he said he was going to do. So they take rocks and they fill up the wells and they cover the fields and they cut down the trees and they destroy cities and towns and they, they have the victory, great victory, until lastly they reach one last city, Kir Harasheth, the capital of Moab. One of the two capitals of Moab. And then something rather strange happens. We read that in verses 26 and 27. Let's look at those last two Verses. When the king of Moab saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. Then he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. The king is desperate. He takes his last 700 men, or at least the best men of what's remaining, and he tries to break through the weakest part of the line to get behind, and he wants to kill this king and start rolling the army up as it goes, and he fails, and so he has to retreat back into the city. What's he going to do now? The slingers are at the gates. Well, he does all that he knows to do. He takes his son, the crown prince, and he goes up, if you can imagine, he goes up onto the, onto the top of the city wall to the highest point in the city. And there he sacrifices his son. He sacrifices the crown prince in an attempt to appease the Moabite god Chemosh, who must have been upset. The king reasons, well, this god must be upset with me. That must be why I'm losing this battle. So I will appease him with this sacrifice of ultimate devotion. And surprisingly, it seems to work. That's an odd thing, isn't it? 
Now, what is the author saying? Is he saying, well, actually, yeah, Chemosh is a pretty powerful god. If you satisfy him with child sacrifice, he'll win the battle for you. That would be a pretty strange thing for the author of Kings, whose whole point in the book is that there is only one God to be saying. There's really three things going on here. You have to remember that the Israelite army is full of pagans. The army of Judah isn't. But the bulk of the force, Israel's army, is full of pagans. And they believe in multiple gods, and they believe in the power of different sacrifices. And so when they see the Moabite king make the ultimate sacrifice in his homeland, where his god is supposed to be strongest, they lose their stomach for battle. They're a casualty of their own idolatry. And then on the flip side, you have the the Moabites who also believe in the power of this kind of a sacrifice. And they see the devotion and the desperation of their king, and they're given one last blast of fury and vigor. This This is what the secular historian Josephus says that happened. The Israelites lost courage while the Moabites gained it. But hovering over all of that, Hovering over all of that, of course, is the Lord. The Lord has accomplished all his purposes that he needs to accomplish. He saved Jehoshaphat, Israel's, or Judah's king. He's demonstrated the power of his prophet. And he's demonstrated his own power. There's no reason to go on. In fact, the Lord has reason not to go on. The Lord has already promised that he is going to destroy the dynasty of Ahab. That Ahab's kingdom is going to fall apart. And so there's no reason for the Lord to keep Moab under Israel's thumb. He's already proven himself. He's proven his prophet. There's nothing more for him to do. And so he allows the Israelites to get that far and then have to go home. God is vindicated and he cares nothing again for Joram. We've already talked about a number, of, a number of important things here. The importance of not making major decisions without consulting the Lord in prayer. And the importance of not banking on repentance at a, at a later time. And on the importance of recognizing that God is better than we imagine. But we still haven't driven to that main point. Who does God listen to? And why does he listen to them? Well, the Moabites believed that Chemosh had listened to them because their king had sacrificed his son. The Moabites believed that they had manipulated their God into hearing their prayers and that it had worked. And the Lord is content to let them think this. The Lord doesn't have to prove himself in the moment or demonstrate that they're wrong. He's happy to let the Moabites, as the Scripture says, Walk in darkness until the time of Christ when the gospel is preached to all nations, including Moabites and Edomites. But in the the experience of Joram, God doesn't listen to him. And he's told that God isn't going to listen to him. But God does listen to Elisha. God listens to Elisha, he answers the call of Elisha, and he speaks to Elisha 
And the Lord saves because of Elisha. And why does he save? Why does he listen to Elisha? Well, it's right there in the text. If it were not for Jehoshaphat, I would not listen. But the Lord listens. The Lord listens because Jehoshaphat is there. The Lord listens because David's son is there. Because his promise is there. The Lord listens because he still loves David, because he still loves his promise to David, and he saves and he listens because Jehoshaphat is a righteous king. Why does God listen to us? Why would he listen to us? Does he listen to us because we are righteous? Hardly. We're not righteous. If we go to any passage, perhaps in the New Testament, you could see this, but I just picked one from Colossians 3. Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. In ourselves, we look a lot more like Joram than Elisha. So why does God listen to us? And why would he listen to us? Why would he save us? The reason he listens to us is the same reason that he spared Israel and Judah and Edom from disaster. He listens to us because we stand with David's son. David's greater son. David's greatest son. He listens to us because we stand with a righteous king. He listens to us because we stand with Christ. The only thing standing between Israel and Judah and Edom and disaster was God's promise. And the only thing standing between us and disaster is God's promise fulfilled in Christ. Once again, the eminently helpful commentator Ralph Davis says, if you receive any benefit from God, it is because you stand next to the Davidic king, Jesus the descendant of David and of Jehoshaphat. The Moabites thought their God listened to them because they manipulated him into listening to them. They thought God listened to them because their king had sacrificed his son. We know that God listens to us because he sacrificed his son. And because he has given his son to us and for us, we may pray and he will listen to us because we belong to him. This is what Jesus says in John. He says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the son may bring glory to the father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. And that's not carte blanche, absolute permission to do whatever you want and to pray for whatever you want and you'll get 
whatever you want. But it is an invitation, an unconditional invitation for those who belong to Jesus to come to pray for godly good things that bring glory to God and have a holy expectation that God listens. On one condition, you must pray belonging to Jesus and in Jesus' name. The reason God listens to us is not because we're so great. It's not because we've done enough to make Him listen to us. It's not because we can manipulate Him into listening by putting a big check or a little check in the offering plate or doing really great things. The reason Jesus, reason God listens to us is because we belong to Him. God listens to Jesus' people for Jesus' sake. And that's it. It's that simple. And it's that glorious and encouraging. Let's pray. Lord God, we trust that in coming here today, we anticipate that you will speak to us. In coming here today, there is a sense of humility in us that says we need to hear. And we thank you that you are not done speaking, that you still speak to us in your word, in the voice of the prophets and the apostles. And we thank you that your word still speaks to life, that your word still holds out hope. And we pray that we might not make the mistake of Joram who missed it again and again and again, who hated you and hated you until it was too late. We pray that today would be the day of salvation if it has not yet come already. That you would lead us to repentance and to faith, to a conversion not of convenience, but of sincerity and conviction. And God, we thank you that your ears are not closed to us. Your ears are not closed to us because your ears are never closed to your Son. And because his Spirit is given to his people, that we might pray real prayers that are really heard. That we might pray prayers which your Son gives to you as if they were from Himself. That we have one who intercedes for us, always prays for us before Your throne. We thank You that You hear us in the name of Jesus and for Jesus' sake. We thank You for a King far more righteous and far more wise than Jehoshaphat. We thank You for the Promised One who stands forever between us and disaster and who ever lives to intercede that you as our Father would hear us, hear us in our humility, in our distress, in our desperation, in our joys, in our faith. 
God, give us the great grace of knowing that we do not need to manipulate you into hearing. But that you just hear. Not through what we have done or will do, but through what Christ has already done. Give us that confidence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.